Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome to the Mini Break, your day podcast for the biggest storylines, results, and controversies from the tennis world. Today is Thursday, February 22nd. The great binge has been completed. I am now officially caught up on the past two weeks in the pro tennis world, and we still have so much to cover here on this podcast as we try to catch all of you listeners up as well on this edition of the show. Want to take a 20,000-foot view step back and look at some of the mainstream headlines that have emerged over the past two weeks. We've had, what, six, seven, eight, nine? I've lost track of the tour-level events we have had unfold over the past two weeks. But within them, of course, so many different storylines for us to cover. We have seen a bunch of the top players in the world compete. And thus, it does feel appropriate to discuss things like who right now are the best players in the world on the men's and women's side. Of course, I want to offer my thoughts still on the Carlos Alcaraz injury. How concerned do we need to be about him moving forward. What's the gap right now between WTA number four and five? What do we make of the start to the American men here in 2024 and so much more? Again, we still have to hit the niche storylines, but let's cover the mainstream here on today's podcast. And I can think of no better person to help me cover all of those topics than the man joining me as our co-host here on today's show. Of course, you all know him best as lead editor for allthingstennis.com. Of course, he's a returning champion here on this podcast. Again, essentially a co-host of the mini break on this point uh, at this point. And perhaps most importantly, while I have been busy covering the collegiate ranks, he and his team have been hard at work making sure you you and every tennis fan know everything happening across the tennis world. Of course, it is my dear friend, David Kane, joining us on the show once again today. DK, welcome back to the podcast. I apologize to you that I didn't make time to see you in New York. It is the ultimate unforced error on my part. I would have loved to. I would have loved to see you in Colombia as well, but it's great to see you back now. Sincerely, there's no one I would rather cover all of these topics with than you. How are you doing today, my friend? I don't recall being invited to Colombia, and as, <laughs> as some of our friends have learned in the last couple of days, I don't go nowhere unless I'm invited. <laughs> but I do have to say, I appreciate for those who are not able to view us today that Alex Breskin is lit in green today, which is incidentally the color that washed across my face when I found out that he spent time with Nick McCarville over the weekend <laughs> and not me. That's fine. In the Battle of New Yorkers, I guess McCarville always has one up over me, even though he's from Montana and I'm actually from here. But that's <laughs> fine. That's neither here nor there. But I also wanted to apologize on behalf of the pro game for being such a burden to you. I know you were really just knee deep in more important stuff over the last couple of weeks, but I'm glad you can finally make some time for the niche topics that really take up pro sport. 
nowadays. So apology accepted by you. I love the fact that your restaurant recommendation was the exact same as the Columbia coach's recommendation. Some Italian spot right by my hotel that in theory would have been delicious. Here's the best part, DK. It's an excuse for me to come back. I will say the reason I would have gotten dinner with you Sunday night. Okay. You want to play dirty secret mode? No secrets between podcast best friends, right? And I like to think we're podcast best friends. So I mean, save it for the Patreon, but okay. <laughs> <laughs> All right. No secrets between podcast best friends. I had to go to dinner with a buddy of mine from college who also lives in New York, and here's why. His wedding is coming up in November, and I had a sneaking suspicion that he might ask me to be his groomsman or one of his groomsmen. That was indeed what occurred, and so I just couldn't afford to not go to dinner with him, and that was the only night, Sunday night, I had a dinner slot available because the semifinal ended by seven. Is being named a groomsman in a friend's wedding a reasonable enough excuse to have not gone to dinner with you? Well, I'll tell you, when I find a boyfriend and we get serious <laughs> and we get engaged, I will be inviting Gil Gross to dinner to ask him to be a groomsman. So that's all there is to it. I legitimately – all right. DK, we're podcast best friends as we've established on this show. So I need a little therapy session with you. I am nowhere near getting married. I want to make that abundantly clear. Oh, same. (laughs) We share that. This is is my longest relationship, so happy anniversary, baby. Yeah, (laughs) uh, I would say it's you, but the truth is for me, it's Westoff. Like, it's five years now, me and him. We're running strong, and uh, the the steam is still there. So the world's greatest love triangle, really. (laughs) Anyways, I think I might be a groomsman at, like, 12 people's wedding. And I just really wonder what that says about me. Like, I am truly, I think, for the boys. And it might be to my detriment long-term, DK. I think I'm coming to that realization. Like, I'm very flattered to be asked to be a groomsman at three different weddings coming up. I haven't hit my brothers yet. There are a couple of really close friends of mine that I am very certain will ask and I will certainly accept. And again, humble brag. Not really. Just a brag. But... Oh, man, it kind of have showed me my priorities in my late teens and early 20s. I'm like, oh, like that was clearly what it was the option of. Do I want to hang out with friend or do I want to do something maybe in pursuit of my own personal life? And it's like, no, I'll go hang out with my buddy. Wasn't just Saturdays for the boys. You saved all (laughs) all seven days of the week for the boys. But incidentally, I do feel like you're going to Thursday in particular. I do feel like you're going to give a hell of a groomsman speech. I feel like, you know, as as one with. This sort of experience. We were, I was just having this conversation with somebody, with a friend of mine who's planning her own wedding. She, that she doesn't want any speeches. And I said, you know, it's difficult to do a speech that's both funny and heartwarming and delivered well. And I feel like you're one of the rare people who actually have the experience to kind of back up that kind of speech that'll perhaps go viral on a TikTok or two. I, I would I would certainly aim for that. And you certainly have a lot of opportunities. <laughs> well, I missed you. So we can get into tangent number two off of this. I am such a good wedding speech writer. And I want oh, you to know my older never brother for a second. My older brother will text me. I know when the text is coming. It's always five days before the wedding. And he goes, hey, I have to tell a speech. Here's some things you can talk about. Will you write it for me? Because and I learned this trick in my first profession, which will remain nameless, but you know what it is. 
rhymes work. And so I just write poems and it's, you know, again, real simple, but they're always funny and they're effective and they're short, but it's memorable. And my older brother's best friends who are twins, but one of them got married and I wrote this speech for him. And that was the first one I wrote and it went really well. And so the burden has been placed upon me ever since. The problem is I have weddings back to back weekends. I don't know if I have two poems and 14 days. I'm on tennis.com deadlines, DK. Oh, Robert Frost over here. Yeah. <laughs> I'm Secret talent hi- is poetry. Oh, I'm going to have to hire you as a ghostwriter. I'm going to, how about this? I will send you the things. And I know you don't know the people, but you can tell me if you think they're funny or not. And that will be something we do later on this year. Fair? So I'm not much of a poet, but I am a joke snob. So I feel like this is where. Our doubles prowess will really, our, our partnership will really come come in handy. I've told you some of the jokes I wrote for the college tennis roast for coaches that has never been, and they're funny. I stand by all they're brutal. Of them. Yeah, <laughs> he takes no prisoners, ladies and gentlemen. Yeah, but did you laugh? I did. Yeah, I, I love all, a, I love a roast. That's all I'm saying is that gear is in there. It's what I would secretly aspire to do. I just don't think I'm actually funny enough to do it. Not stand up, but I mean again writing jokes would be a delight of mine. Anyways, you know what I really do enjoy doing and I have the privilege of doing, very fortunate and often with you, is talking tennis. So let's get back to the great binge, catching up on all things over the past two weeks. And roasting tennis players, incidentally. (laughs) Much 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 to the chagrin of some of our some of the fans who tune in. <laughs> or maybe it's the other way, not roasting them. Because there are a lot of positives to take away from the past two weeks. And certainly a conversation, best player in the world, we can start with those positives. Let's start on the women's side. It's been a weird start to the year for world number one Iga Sviantek. Only in the sense if that Australian open run just doesn't fit with everything else we have seen from her. To start 2024, to end 2023, obviously she goes 5-0 and in United Cup. She is now one Doha, made the final of Dubai back-to-back. Sandwiched in between that, those weird matches against Danielle Collins and Linda Noskova in the second and third rounds of Australia. Now, DK, I think it's like she's played 16 events over the last 52 weeks. She's made the quarterfinals or further in 15 of them. What are we doing here? Like... You can stop there. She's 70 and 9 overall. It's an 89% win percentage. Now, again, there's only one slam title in that run, but seven different titles overall in eight different finals. She's got 22 wins over top 20 opponents, no one else over 20. You know, I like stats. Here's a real simple one for you, DK. Holds percentage, break percentage. I don't need to give you top 10 club. Let's give you a top one club. Who's number one in hold percentage? Iga Sviantek. Who's number one in break percentage? Iga Sviantek. There is a text from you in a group chat, we are both in, where you gave a shout out to yourself, which by the way is my favorite kind of shout out. So you know you had my attention. I don't always respond because my focus is always on nine different things, but it was one of my favorite texts you've sent over the last two weeks is, you know, I noticed the Iga Sviantek change in serve technique. And then when I've binged over these last 72 weeks, I noticed it as well. It's up on the shoulder a little bit quicker. It's more abbreviated than perhaps it once was. She still snaps through it well. But the movement, the ground strokes, the depth, the pace, she I, – I gave this analogy on today's part one of the Great Binge recap. She did to Chin Wen what Chen Wen did to Potapova, and that analogy shouldn't mean – 
But well, you said some roasting today, um, and I got you to giggle. But that analogy shouldn't make sense. Like the degrees of separation, she shouldn't be able to do that to Chin Wen in the way Chin Wen's able to do that to Potapova. And it was just like, sorry, like unless Chin Wen made a first serve and she made fewer than 50%, so she didn't help herself. But unless she made a first serve, and even then, unless it was a first serve really well to the forehand or perfect down the tee on the due side, Iga won the point. And, like, that's – Iga did that to Svitolina the round before. To most of extent, she did to Svitolina as well. Haven't mentioned it yet. The Rabakina match. Down 4-1, obviously, in the first set. The level for her to take that first – that was exceptional. That was like Rabakina was flirting with Brisbane final levels of tennis from earlier this year. Not quite there, but flirting with it throughout the course of the week, coming off of an Abu Dhabi title as well. And Iga took that away. And Iga's ability to take Rabakina's serve as a return and hold her ground on the baseline, she's the only one who can do that. She's the best player in the world right now. I know she didn't win Australia, but that's that's the exception, not to the rule, to what has been a 70-9, 52-week run. And I guess the last stat, courtesy of Opta Ace, 14 straight wins against top 20 opponents, David. The top, uh, the only four players to do that this century. Venus, Serena, Justine Ennin, and Iga Swiatek when she did it in 2022. I think this one's been more impressive. She's the best player in the world, is she not? More impressive than Venus, Serena, and Justine? Is that what you just said? No, no, no. This oh. has been more impressive than Iga's 2022 version. Oh, because interesting. Because the field of people she has beaten. Yes, I know. You, we talked pre-pod. The gap between ten, top 10, top 20 has never been closer. I, that's why I've moved into top 8 range because I want to get even more niche. Um, but I just think like the Rabakinas, Sabalankas, versions of golf she's beaten, the top contenders are better than what those top contender field looked like in 2022. And that's yeah. why this streak for Iga is more impressive than her streak, not the Serena Venus. And yeah. I appreciate you clarifying. No, this has been more impressive. Slams aside, she's been better than Sabalanka everywhere else. And I just think the totality makes her number one. I mean, either way, you were going to make somebody mad with that. Statement. But <laughs> yeah, I, sure. what I, I want to remind our listeners that we picked Iga as the number one player coming out of the Australian Open before seeing what we shout saw out to in us. the Middle East. So shout out to us. We did call that. We, we were not swept up in the recency bias of Sabalanka's dominant run to the Australian Open title for sure. What I will say is in many ways, what we've been saying about Iga continues to be true. She is the best athlete. She is the most mentally tough, mature player on tour. And I think that is what is taking her. And it it is what lends itself to this kind of streaky tennis. And and, and I say that in a positive way where she can reel off, you know, seven, 10, 12 matches in a row without really seeming to be that challenged. And I think, you know, at the same time, what we also know to be true about her is that she can get the racket taken out of her hand by a very select few players, but those players need to have need to do that from start of the match to finish. It's not enough just to be a, an imposing Rabakina up for up for one, two breaks. You need to be able to maintain that intensity through two sets. And we have seen Rabakina and Sabalika do that. But if they don't, Sabalika, uh, Shvantec is very much capable of coming back and turning that match around as she did in the Doha finals. So, I mean, for her, and I, and I am interested to talk to you perhaps more in, in some other technicians about the change that Shvantec made to her serve. Do we attribute... The change in serve to the loss to Noskova? I mean, that was a pretty new 
debut, technically speaking, well, and only her seventh or eighth match of the year. And maybe that's what why. And now that she's more comfortable, that's why she's streaking. But I do think that in many ways, what we knew about Iga coming into the season remains true. And that's bad news for all but maybe two and a half players on tour. Calling me a technician, I might cry. I'm, I'm very flattered. I'd rather yeah. talk tech, technique than stats. You know no. <laughs> uh, well, the thing for me, and it's not a stat, it's a ranking-driven thing. You look at the points race, and let's be clear, we're seven weeks into the season. It's still a very small sample size for the points race. If Iga wins the title this week and left in Dubai, she's got Kalinskaya, then the winner of Paulini and Kirstea, I think Iga's the favorite according to the Tennis Abstract Singles forecast. She's an 82% to win the title. If Iga wins it, DK, despite a third-round loss in Australia, she will be number one in the points race. That's with a Rabakina, who, by the way, has two titles already to her name and a final, you know, last week in Doha or wherever it was. I think I got the city right as well. Iga will be number one in the points race, despite a third-round loss in Australia. And look, Sabalenka lost first round this week. No one's hitting the panic button on that, that she won that first set and— even found herself in a third despite the level she was playing, um, speaks to Sabalenka, the competitor that she has become. But it's the consistency of ego week in, week out, like one bad week where Noskova also played pretty darn well, but Iga did miss fire on the serve. To me, the technique's not particularly relevant, DK, because... That, to me, hasn't been the difference. I know the serve has, technique has changed, but it's still hitting the same spots. It's still opening the same opportunities. The thing, to me, that has changed is the vigor and the aggression with which she attacks those opportunities. Like, her ability to rope Chin Wen wide on the ad side with a backhand cross and then short hop what was a pretty good response from Chin Wen down the line with her backhand and beat her to the spot. Like, Chin Wen moves pretty darn well. And Iga just beat her to that spot every time. Iga's picking her spot at will with the forehand. And even when she mishit the ball now, it feels like in the Middle East in particular, those mishits are landing with depth. And they come in so elevated because she does hit with such heavy topspin that those shanks just make her opponents uncomfortable. And it's like if those are what her mishits do, you're just in trouble She's still the quickest of what is a really athletic generation of young players, Chin Wen, Goff, et cetera. I'll take Iga's movement over all of them because not just the first step, the little step she makes to adjust as well. She just refines everything. She continues to get stronger. I mean, again, it's a win streak. It's 70 and 9. There's not a lot of losses to not compliment or to point at like Noskova everything was just so off for Collins to go down 4-1 everything was so off that it didn't even feel like a normal normal Iga match it felt like exceptions not rules and that's a testament to the consistency the 22 year old has brought now for two and a half years I think it's everything else I don't think it's a serve DK is that a fair assessment I mean, I was just curious if that was something that yeah. was maybe making her more confident, if it was upping her serve percentage. It seemed like she seems more confident on serve. I mean, the, the Chinwen match is interesting because it really, there are a few players in general that can challenge Svantec right now, but I think Chinwen is a particularly tasty opponent if you're Iga. Sure. She's a big hitter prone to unforced errors with a first serve percentage that is typically under 50%. I mean, that just gives Iga so many opportunities to break, so many opportunities to not feel pressure on her serve. And I think that's why... 
historically, that has been a very comfortable matchup for her. Now six and zero against uh, Chin Wen, two and zero this year, counting the the United Cup six three six two, and then six three six four six three six two again. I think today as well. So I mean, it's just sort of a, a standard standard fare for her to warm her up for what should be, you know, a pretty seamless Middle East double. I mean, I'm sure the WTA uh, WTA website is pretty all in on Jasmine Paolini, but I, I would suspect that uh, that Iga takes this title in the end and, and would deservably be number one in the race based on the totality of the first two months. You know, what Iga's done at five tournaments, however many versus the two that Sabalenka's played or three counting Dubai this week, you know, that's, that's simple math. <laughs> and that's not yeah. something I'm going to argue with. 14-1 overall, 83.6% hold percentage. That's a career high by 3%, and that's better than prime Osaka. That's prime Serena flirting range, and how she gets to that hold percentage is obviously so different. 48.2 break percentage as well. That's best of the best. It's number one. Again, she's number one right now in both hold and break percentage over the last 52 weeks. She's the best player in the world. I do think coming off of these first two months— it's pretty clear there's a gap between four and everyone else, and I don't even know who's five. At any given moment, it feels to change. Now, who are those top four? Iga's one. Vekic loss aside, Sabalenka's consistency at the slams. She's made, what, semifinals or further at six consecutive majors and obviously has won two majors in the last five with back-to-back Australian Open titles. She's the clear-cut number two. The fun number, it's February 22nd. Seven weeks in. Elena Rabakina is 17-3, and three, DK. And she is, for the first time in her career, top 25 in break percentage. Obviously, she's always top five in hold percentage, but that speaks to the improvements. I think she's moving extraordinarily well, better than I've ever seen the 24-year-old scoot around the court. Now, the conditions in the Middle East seem to help, but the way she overwhelmed Fernandez, the way she overwhelmed Pavlachenkova, the way she overwhelmed that just about everyone, but Samsonova on her way to the Abu Dhabi title as well. Again, a weird match against Anna Blinkova at the Australian Open aside. Rabakin has pretty clearly been tier one this season. And I mentioned Sviantek with the title this week can become number one in the points race. Rabakina is number th- will be number three in that scenario. She's only 300 points behind Sabalenka, still within 600 of Sviantek with the sunshine swing coming up. And we obviously know her success during that portion of the calendar. She's the clear-cut number three. Now, again, that's a little bit hot-takey given just how consistent Coco Gauff has been for six months. Now, I know it's been a tough two weeks in the Middle East. She has to be four. Like, obviously, she had a very good Australian Open run. I don't think you can knock Coco Gauff coming off of an Australian Open where what she made— I want to say semifinals. I apologize. I've got a lot of tennis going in my head right now. Yes, semifinals indeed. A loss to the eventual champion, Sabalenka, 6-4. and four. No shame in that one. I just forgot what round that was. Like, losses to Sinyakova. The Kalinskaya loss, given how dead Kalinskaya looked after set one, was tough. But I think she has to be 4, still given the benefit yeah. of the doubt, right? I mean, both like, of those losses were bad, to be fair. Like, I think we were all looking for that Iga Coco semifinal matchup and then for Kalinskaya to come back from a set down and do it. And then the Sinyakova loss last week. You know, what you could say is that this is still fairly new territory for Coco. I, she doesn't, I can't remember the last time she's played the Middle East as, you know, a an elite player. It just seems like a, a part of the season she's typically skipped. So this is probably all unfamiliar territory for her, just 
still as someone who's still very young, who's not not quite 20 years old yet. But yes, obviously, I would put her behind Rabakina just in terms of the power rankings. But I do think that obviously, as a reigning Grand Slam champion, top four, top three, you know, pick your yeah. person. The thing is, what do you do after that? That's where the gap approaches. Oh, I know. And right now in the rankings, Pagula is fifth. She's 1,800 points behind Elena Rabakina. Obviously, she, Dave Witt, just split uh, their coaching pairing and uh, who she hires next. A fascinating question, certainly in tennis circles. She has not been consistent enough to have a, a firm grasp on that number five spot. Maybe you p- point to a Chin Wen, who I know lost early last week, but... You're shaking your head at me as no, if to say it's because it's Yelena Ostapenko. Well, so the, again, <laughs> Chin Wen coming off of an Australian Open final in the conversation. Yelena <laughs> Ostapenko versus anyone but Victoria Azarenka uh. has to be in that conversation. Like after that, I mean, top three storylines of the season so far. What if Iga doesn't lose to Noskova? What if Rabakina doesn't lose to Blinkova? What if what if Ostapenko doesn't have to play Azarenka? In any of these top tournaments, this season could look very different. You know, who knows what would have happened at the end of that Australian Open, but for the uh, the the untimely matchup between Azarenka and Ostapenko. A hundred percent. After her that, after that, like it's fun to look at the tennis abstract Elo ratings. Here's a number you will really like, DK. Yearly Elo ratings. You know who's fifth best on the yearly Elo ratings? Fourth best for them is Ostapenko. Golf's at nine. Guess who's fifth? It's someone Ooh. you'll like. That's why I bring it up. Oh boy! Uh, She's working her way back up the rankings. That's Pavlyuchenkova. She is fifth on the tennis abstract Elo rankings. Love that. <laughs> she has been in a, a top twenty player. Like She's legitimately, been good. yeah. It's quarterfinals are better just about every week for Pavlyuchenkova. She her power tennis is just disrupting just about anyone. We're in a power tennis era, DK. You know what? And I would have to add both Pavlyuchenkova and Ostapenko have been playing a lot of matches this year. They both look like they're perhaps in as fit as they have looked in 100%. years, and, I, and it almost seems like purely as a result of just playing so many matches, like it just forced them to get into shape because they're constantly exercising. Like it's it's phenomenal. Well, that's why, again, this race for who's number five right now on the women's side has become so fascinating, much like the men's was to end last year, because Goff has that benefit of the doubt. After that, again, Ostapenko has been as consistent as she has ever been for about 16 months consecutively now. Kellen Sky has been really good for four months consecutively, and she has consolidated her top 50 position post-Australian Open, but no one is putting her in the five spot. Can't put Pavs there yet. Yastremska, no. Pliskova resurgence is fun. We'll talk about it later, but no. Emma Navarro, obviously, no. Vika flirting with it, but probably still a no. That delta feels big, DK. Who's your number five player? It, it, it sounds like, so you're leaning Ostapenko. Is, so let me reframe the question then. Tier two, because I'm, I think Goff has to be tier one. You have to respect it. Reigning slam champion. Bad Middle East run. It's two weeks in February. Let's watch the sunshine swing before we make a harsh judgment one way or the other. She made semifinals Australia. Wins in Auckland. Don't forget those facts. We'll be Five, nice. Tier two. Next tier of contenders. If you want to drop Pagula out of it now, that's fine. I think Ostapenko and Chin Wen both have to be in it. Maybe you put Vika in there as well because she's the Ostapenko stopper. That's tier two, is it not? Yeah, I mean, it's just so weird to be looking at the top 10 right now where you look yeah. at Pagula, Jabor, Vondrusova, bless, Jung Chinwen, <laughs> Sakari. I mean, other than Chinwen, none of those players have really been relevant for the first two months of the season. Arguably, 
longer. I mean, if you think of a Jabor or a Apagula, obviously had a good finish to last year winning, um, making the finals of the WTA finals. But I mean, it's just like, it feels like so much of their placement in the top 10 is due to results that they are yet to defend. And we're, we haven't really seen quite the, yet the turnover of players who have started the season much better. And that may happen in the spring. We don't know, but certainly speaks to the fact that the, a lot of the players in the top 10 still have time to sort out whatever as whatever is behind their sluggish starts to 2024. Yeah, I think that's fair. Again, just to run you through some numbers real quick, because thank God. You know, well, did you miss me, DK? I mean, again, <laughs> we got to catch up on two weeks of things, so we have lots of numbers to discuss. Things, obviously, I have touched on before, but I think you start on the Ostapenko side of things, since that's your number one since the start of last year's grass court season. Her run to the Birmingham title, thirty-four and fourteen overall. It's a 71% win percentage. That's the best stretch of her career, including 2017 by win percentage against top 20 opponents against during this stretch, six and three overall. She's made quarterfinals or further at seven different events. Like that's who she's been for six months now, a player in the mix everywhere. Chin Wen during that stretch of time, 31 and 10. She's 26 and one against opponents ranked outside the top 25 and nine against top 20 opponents. Obviously, wins for against Ostapenko, Sakari, Krejcikova, Vondrosova, etc. On the Vika side of things, the 23 and 18 is weird, but you look for her 2024 specifically, 10 and four overall, semifinals Brisbane, round of 16 Australia, quarterfinals Doha, you know, Three of her four losses, Sabalenka, Sviantek, Rabakina. That's probably the tier. Now, I do think, again, there's a significant gap. Like, are you, I guess, are you ready to give all three of these players Azarenka consistency aside? So we'll move her. Chinwen, Ostapenko, are you ready to give them the benefit of the doubt consistency wise, event in, event out? I mean, I would have been more willing to give it to Ostapenko over Chinwen prior to this Kalinskaya loss, which feels very okay. odd to me because I do feel like, yes, Chinwen made the final of the Australian Open, but there are still some pretty clear flaws in the game that Sabalenka exposed quite easily in that match. And it really did speak to the fact that Chinwen did not have the kind of draw that one typically would expect to make a first Grand Slam final. Yes, she beat the players in front of her. Yes, the game held up for six matches, but... What we saw from Chinwen against Sabalenka, what we saw against her for from her today against Shvantec, you know, a confident, well put together player can really take her apart. Quite, it's not close yet. These are not like close matches between Sabalenka and Shvantec. So I well, think that's. She is. I, I think Ostapenko can really challenge both of them. More so I right now. I agree to that. I would also say Chinwen had traditionally not obviously beaten Shvantec, but challenged her. This was the first runaway that we had she'd seen win in that set. rivalry. Yeah, she'd win a set, but yeah. it never felt close. Like it was never like a, you know, it was never like a 6-3, like a 3-6-7-5, Iga always pulled like away. Always, You're right. Exactly. You're right. Like a 3-6-6-1-6-1. Right. Like, eh. She'd play one good set, and then yeah. it would be like two different matches. This was the first one where it was like, oh, no, not today. And so, again. Oh, boy. Yeah, decisive. Yeah. <laughs> I just think we are starting to see some things running into form, but I do think there's a gap between four and the rest. And, boy, if you tried to do after six, seven, and what the rest of that field in top eight looks like, good freaking luck to you. Obviously, we have these next weeks in Sunshine Swing to try and figure that out moving forward. DK, let's flip over to the men's side now. Same question. Best player in the world. 
I'm smiling. I do think we said Novak after Australia in spite of Sinner's win in Australia. So I ask you now, (sighs) Rotterdam, he's 44-5 and since the start of Wimbledon last year. Two of those losses are to Djokovic. You look for him overall. He's played a total of 11 different events with Davis Cup. Uh, You look for him in terms of semifinals or further seven. You know, again, he's won six different titles in 11 events with Davis Cup included. Obviously, I include that because he beat Djokovic during it, down match points. So I think you have to. He's now a slam champion, top five in both hold and break percentage. He's winning 90% of his matches for six months, and he's still just 22 years old. It's world number one quality stuff. Are you ready to go all the way there with him? What I will say, and hopefully maybe this will get me some brownie points with the Novak fans because God knows they're always trying to burn my house down, is that the men's tour, the men's calendar in February is different from the women's tour in February, where it feels like with the way that the, the calendar for the women is set up with Dubai, Doha, now Abu Dhabi, there's a much cleaner string of tournaments that allows you to draw more conclusions, perhaps, than February for the men. It's always been a bit helter-skelter. Yes, there's Rotterdam, but there's, you know, Los Cabos and, Do- and Doha and Dubai. And there's never really like a string of, you know, obviously what Medvedev was able to do, just winning all of them this time last year was quite instructive for how he handled the rest of the season. But based on Sinner winning Rotterdam, it doesn't feel enough. That doesn't feel like enough still for me to make that flip between Sinner and Djokovic. I feel like the men's race for number one is going to be much more contingent on how Indian Wells and Miami goes. I mean, I it would be it would be a very interesting debate if Sinner and Djokovic split Indian Wells and Miami in some kind of way. Then I kind of think you can make an argument for both. But if Djokovic wins one or both and Sinner doesn't, then I do think it's still Novak. I just think he has the resume and he has the length of results in front of him. But obviously Sinner, regardless, is very much number two and certainly close as close to number one. as as close to Djokovic as anyone other than Alcaraz has been in years. So for that alone, hats off, take my hat off to that. But um, no, I still think it's Djokovic just because it's Djokovic. It's exactly my position as well. It's a conversation now. He's beaten Djokovic three times. So it has to be a conversation. This is not a superficial rise from Yannick Sinner. It's where he's won these events. The Beijing win, wins all over Alcaraz. Yeah, Alcaraz and Medvedev back-to-back. To see him in Australia beat Djokovic, beat Medvedev, beat Rublev, Hatchinov, Baez in the fashion he did back-to-back-to-back-to-back-to-back. But it's just seeds, again, consecutively. And now, yeah, things opened up in Rotterdam. It was Demonauer who had the tough path, not Sinner, but... So what did Yannick Sinner do? He lost one set on his way to the title. I mean, again, this is a guy who's holding serve over 90% of the time in the Isner range. He's breaking serve over 27% of the time in the elite of the elite range. Again, top five returner right now. The pace he plays with, overwhelming off both wings, how well he moves. He's gotten stronger. He continues to improve as a volleyer. He's just good, if not great, at everything. The eye test matches the results. 44-5 and five over six-month stretch has been earned with the level he performs on court match in, match out. And there's an ease with which he does it. There's a confidence he clearly exudes now that is a superficial metric but has to be measured. He gets broken trying to serve for that first set against Demon in the Rotterdam final. Breaks right back, closes it out. This guy is so freaking good. 
And as someone who often said I thought his ceiling was as high as a Carlos Alcaraz's because of what he was able to do on the backhand wing, because of the totality of ways he can attack you, not just overwhelming you with pace, with athleticism, but by working you around the court as well, taking the alleys you give him. You're absolutely right. Like, obviously, in the original next-gen generation, guys like Medvedev, Zverev, Tsitsipas, they've all had their moments where they have beaten the Djokovic, Federer, Nadal of that moment but no one has flirted with this range of tier one tennis as consistently with this sort of youth and runway ahead of him other than Carlos Alcaraz like Yannick Sinner has now for six months consecutively. And I agree with you. No one's betting against Djokovic after one Australian Open loss. But Sinner is just like, it's just real. It's just welcome to the, we can have a fun conversation. We're not going to do it because I don't want to get in trouble. But we can have a fun conversation. Like, can this guy win 10 majors? Not a lot of players have done it. He's young enough now, the level you show, where it's like, if you want to really have some fun with your friends, maybe you start to push the boundaries in that conversation. I was just laughing about the earlier conversation we were having about Saturdays being for the boys and perhaps these days that you're spending debating <laughs> Sinner, Djokovic, and Alcaraz may have been better spent doing something else. But Married to the game. Why PK. mess with a good thing? Married to the game. <laughs> No, I mean, just sincerely, like, I think he's been that good. I'm not saying he's winning 10. If I told you he's winning five, would you feel like that's too low? Like, given what we've seen from him this six-month runway, he's 22 years old. God willing, he stays healthy. But, like, him versus Alcaraz, it's not like, oh, no, Alcaraz's ceiling is clearly higher. I know Alcaraz is younger, but Sinner's ceiling is as high as it gets. Yeah, I think it's just a question. I don't even think it's a question of Alcaraz, Sinner versus Djokovic, it's more just Alcaraz and Sinner versus time. And time says that, you know, certainly Djokovic won't be playing for another decade. <laughs> so that would certainly give a lot of Alcaraz and Sinner's 20s and early 30s to really rack up a lot of slams. And I do think compared to even a Medvedev, certainly a Rublev, and at this point even a Runa, Alcaraz and Sinner are the most slam-ready products on the ATP tour right now, other than obviously Djokovic. So I think that they are in pole position, even with the recent struggles that Alcaraz has been having physically, mentally, whatever you want to ascribe it to. I do think that they are just in pole position to rack up a lot of slams. And and for a minute there, it didn't seem like Sinner was was in was in rhythm to do that. It seemed like he was still far, maybe a year behind, but he's making up for lost time in the last six months in some pretty impressive fashion. So he's he's definitely in the hunt right now. I'm smiling because I remember after last year's French Open, someone on this podcast disputed that someone else's rankings that Sinner should be unequivocally on the same tier as Alcaraz and Runa. I ask you six months later, Runa's still on the same tier as Sinner and Alcaraz for you? I felt better about Runa coming into this season with Boris Becker and starting the season making the finals in, what was it, Brisbane against Dimitrov. And then things have gone strange <laughs> in the last six weeks, you know, back with coming Team into Lord the season Tulu. with, with Lupti and, and Becker and now back with Patrick, with whom he has, it must be said, has had his best results. So I do think that there's there's something to be said about that. But um, yeah, it's it's just been a weird, weird couple of months for Runa in a way that 
it was weird for a while for Sinner, just physically and mentally. He just wasn't threading the needle. And now he is. He was not there last year at the French Open. He just wasn't. And so he has made up for lost time. And I do think if he continues at this pace, he will be very tough to beat for the next 15 years. But he'll have to obviously maintain this pace. And we've seen with Alcaraz, with a little bit of foreshadowing, that it is not easy often to maintain this pace, even if you are, you know, carved from marble way Alcaraz appears to have been and certainly Sinner is yet to match that physicality so we'll see how Sinner can maintain this but technically speaking and certainly mentally and moment and momentally speaking <laughs> momentumally speaking mm-hmm. Sinner is in is in really good form right now far better and and making up for lost time than he was a year ago well I want to go to the Alcaraz question next because obviously Alcaraz gets injured during his South American clay court stretch semifinals Buenos Aires knocked out 6 and 3 by Nicolas Yari rolls his ankle against Diego Montero now he has since reported that he should be fine for the Las Vegas exhibition should be fine for Indian Wells and you know he came into Indian Wells last season with an injury we know how that turned out since the US Open ended last year DK Carlos Alcaraz 13 and 8 Overall, now, you know, who have those losses been to? Sinner, Zverev, Djokovic, top 10 guys, no doubt about that. But 13-8 and eight now for a four-month stretch. And so I ask you, David Kane, injury compounded as well. It's the second season where he gets a little bit banged up to start the year, third straight, fourth straight maybe even as well. Any level of concern with you surrounding Alcaraz, or are you feeling just fine if you're the Alcaraz camp? I mean, I'm no more concerned than I was coming out of Australia, which was moderately concerned. Like, I don't think it's a panic, but I mean, given where the heights we were with which we were talking about Alcaraz coming out of Wimbledon and even after Cincinnati, like it just felt like he was very much where Sinner is right now. Just like that number two, maybe even number one. I think it was there was a more compelling argument for Alcaraz as number one over Djokovic than there is right now for Sinner over Djokovic just because of the way he beat Novak at that Wimbledon final, racking up his second slam. It was at Wimbledon. Like, there was just so much gravitas attached to Alcaraz that he's really burned up a lot of the momentum, the goodwill that was behind him, and it just, you know, Sinner slapped a lot of that up. And, you know, obviously uh, Alcaraz is still very, very young and has bounced back from injuries before, but we are talking about him much differently than we were six months ago. I mean, the, just the narratively speaking, the two have really flipped Sinner and Alcaraz. So I don't think this injury makes me more concerned. It's just a, like another example of Oof, this is not going quite according to plan. I mean, the, when you look at Alcaraz, you expect sheer dominance, particularly at this part of the season where you would have expected him to just run the table and get himself back into match fitness ahead of, you know, Indian Wells and Miami. And obviously that didn't happen here. So I think Indian Wells, Miami will be really interesting. But then again, for someone like Alcaraz, it's hard to ever really count him out because he's just so physically and technically talented that he can have a bad Indian Wells, Miami and run the table on clay. I mean, there's really, and he could, or he could run the table on grass. He won Wimbledon last year. I mean, there's really no writing him off, but it's been weird to even have that question, have that conversation because it felt like we'd never be writing him off yeah, or even close to. No, I'm not running him off in the slightest. I'm really not concerned. Like, Nicolas Yari, you have to play almost like him to beat Carlos Alcaraz. Hit the massive serve and have these massive weapons that you can just go down swinging. And if you find enough lines on that given day, you might just knock off the machine. I mean, again, he's not even 20. You know, again, he's not even 21 years old. Like, I'm not concerned. It's it's a tough stretch, no doubt about it. But, like, even if you unpack that stretch— 
tour semifinals where, yeah, he lost two matches at the tour finals. So that comes up two and two in a 13 and eight run. But he made the semifinals of the tour finals last year. Quarterfinals of really his first significant Australian Open since becoming Carlos freaking Elkarez. Yeah, bad loss to Zverev, but he still made the quarterfinals. Semifinals, first clay court event of the season after a long post-Australia layoff. Disappointing and obviously a little concerning that it ends in an injury. I have zero concerns about Carlos Alcaraz moving forward, truth be told. I think Yannick Sinner has caught up, and that's a testament to Sinner, but that just makes things more exciting moving forward, Like, is that there is a real peer for Carlos Alcaraz to always have to measure himself with to you know, push himself or have just that motivation of, Someone, it it's always helpful to have that clear-cut rival, in my opinion, in sport. When they are at their best, who wins? Right now? If, when they're, if they're both playing at their best, because obviously Alcaraz is not, but like if we take peak Alcaraz, peak Sinner, who wins? <sighs> Depends on the surface. Hard okay. court, I'll take Sinner. Clay court, I'll still take Alcaraz, but it's very close. Um, it's very close on both surfaces. And grass court, I think even though Alcaraz won Wimbledon, I'll take Alcaraz because he freaking won Wimbledon and he beat Djokovic in five sets to do it. So even though Sinner did beat Alcaraz on grass, no, at Wimbledon two years ago. Yeah, that's why I He's almost, the last person to beat Sinner. That's why I almost my take Wimbledon. was almost that I was gonna pick Sinner, but then it was like, wait, Alcaraz beat Djokovic in five sets in a Wimbledon final. So you have I mean, to that would have been Alcaraz quite a twist to, that Alcaraz beats loses to Sinner on two out of three surfaces. Yeah. What about indoors? Yeah. <laughs> well, probably indoors, definitely Sinner. Fair <laughs> enough. All right, last four questions for you. I couldn't let you go without the demon hour question. Finals in Rotterdam, and look. Alex Diemenauer, over the last 14 months, he's top five in hardcourt wins. He's 10-4 and four to start the year. Round of 16, Australia. Finals, Rotterdam. Wins over Zverev, Djokovic, and Fritz at United Cup as well. This is a guy who, again, threw t- uh, 14 matches for him this season. Five top 20 wins. Four top 10 wins already this season. He's at a career-high nine right now in the rankings. Is he a top eight guy? Like, is he going to flirt with tour finals this year, DK? This is who he's been on hard courts unequivocally for the last 14 months. Is that going to be enough to propel him to his first tour finals? Like, do we see that sustain all year long and maybe transcend across surfaces? I mean, my first answer and mean answer is sort of just who cares? <laughs> because even if he makes the top eight, he's in no danger of winning the ATP finals. So, be like, great sort of for like, Andre Rublev. You know, like Diego Schwartzman, could he make the top eight? He did, and sure. he lost all three matches. Like, I mean, whatever. I mean, like, I look at the top eight, and it's hard to see who he dislodges. I mean, obviously, Holger Rune is looking vulnerable right now, but, you know, he's still, I would say, more, you know, has more raw talent than an Alex Diemenauer. I mean, but Hercats, Zverev, is, you know, Rublev's still up in the top five. Medvedev, I'm looking at the top the top eight ATP rankings, not the race rankings. But um I don't know. It's just it's such a it's it's a it's a topic you like to discuss. And I just feel like, you know, there are WTA equivalents who I think are always going to be more interesting because they are in more danger of winning a slam or making a slam. I mean, I think like maybe the equivalent would be a Kasakina, you know, someone who doesn't have the same physical intimidating gifts. And but at the same time, you know, has made a slam semifinal already at the French, you know has a really cool girlfriend. They run a really cool vlog. I mean, like, I feel like there's way more to talk about with them than there is for Demon Hour. Like, I mean, everything he does feels like icing on the cake of what has already been an overachieving career, in my opinion. 
Here's the thing. Still 24 years old. Actually turned 25 a couple of days ago. Happy belated birthday to you, Alex Demonauer. A young 25. Right, like or an old 25. He's, he's only going to get older. Like yeah, I don't see him getting like physically stronger. 46 and 22 on hard court since the start of last year. 34 and 11 against opponents outside the top 20. 12 and 11 against the top 20. Like again, it starts out already this year. Four top 10 wins. Djokovic, Zverev, Rublev, Fritz. The serve has been the big improvement. He's holding 86% of the time to start the year. You can see the clear-cut adding of 5 to 7 miles per hour of pace. And if he can just make life 5 to 7 points easier for himself every match with how much pressure he puts on you with his speed as a returner. The loss in Los Cabos is a schedule loss. You go from indoor hard courts to outdoors in Los Cabos. You're just never going to win that. And Mickelson had the perfect game plan to beat him. Can it translate to clay courts? I don't know. It's just been such a perennial struggle. He is a good grass court player, top 20 grass court player. He'll get enough points there that he is clearly just a top 10 out, top 8 out even on hard courts. He'll be in the mix. It's still just a clay court question because I do think he's this guy on hard courts, a guy who will always be flirting with final eight status. And then again, as you mentioned, the glass half full, the negative Nancy take uh, would be like, yeah, that's probably where the road ends for him. But you get enough bites at the apple, you find yourself in a semifinal. He's making an Australian Open semifinal someday, just with a home crowd. It will fall into place the next four years. He's playing really good ball to start. But, you know, again, I think I think the tour finals window is open is what I'm trying to say. Final word belongs to you. I just didn't think of the two of us that you'd be more interested in talking about Twinks than me. I mean, I just feel like it's just really, really flipping the script there. I mean, but honestly, he's ranked ahead of Fritz, Rude, Sitsipas. Talk about the clay court question. You look at Casper and Sitsipas. I mean, both of whom have a lot of opportunities to gain ground on clay in the next few months. You know, he's ranked ahead of Dimitrov, who's had a great start of the season. Tommy Paul, Karen Hachinov, even a Ben Shelton. I mean, like, these are all like explosive talents, you know, who have had really good results, who have beaten, you know, even a Tommy Paul's beaten Carlos Alcaraz at, at Masters tournaments. I mean, I just think these are all players who, even if they haven't had the most match wins to start the season, I still think are probably ones that are worth watching. And I just, he, obviously Diminar is a very different look. He's a very unique character on tour, you know, just physically, technically, tactically. So I see why you'd want to talk about it, but like I just <laughs> for me personally, like it just doesn't it doesn't inspire until again, until he does it. And if he does it, then he makes, you know, makes a slam semifinal, then good for him. I would be very curious to see the draw that allows that to happen, but we will see. Very fun. Uh very hard to disagree. Uh he's already exceeded my very low expectations. I'll say that. <laughs> Fair enough. But you speak of very fun watches. Let's rapid fire through a few to again end today's show. Let's start Taylor Fritz. 250 King, here's the list of players with over 50 wins over the last 52 weeks uh, of 52 weeks on the men's side. Sinner, Alcaraz, Zverev, Rublev, Medvedev, Fritz, Djokovic. That's your list. Taylor Fritz is on that list. Now, a lot of them's been at the 250 level, but is he a top eight guy? Like, is he in the same stratosphere as the demon hour as a demon hour in the conversation for you, DK? Where are you following his run to the title in Delray? I mean, Fritz has at least made the tour finals the last couple of years and has been fairly, you know, intimidating within the group play. And so I would give him more of an edge than a demon hour. But something about Fritz always feels like. What's the right word? It's like it's sort of He's like 11th an invitee, after. not a regular. 
Yeah, it's sort of like eleventh hour. Like he'll like sure. so much of last year was about like ways in which he kind of underperformed or disappointed, and yet he made the he made the tour finals last year, right? And the U.S. Open quarterfinals. Yes, yeah. yeah, so, I mean, like he kind of does just enough to be a top eight player, and he's been fairly consistent at that. But again, you still look at players ranked below him, and you think, well, they may have more talent. <laughs> and have maybe even achieved more, have maybe made Grand Slam finals, have been ranked higher than Fritz. But Fritz, talk about totality of results, has managed to string together a 52 weeks very often that allows him to um, compete for the ATP finals. And that is certainly commendable. And if, you know, Demon Hour manages, manages to do it this year, then, you know, more power to him. But it's just, again, it's a, it, you look at a Tiafo and you look at a Paul and you just feel like they're, in some ways, more com- compelling characters, you know, Morgan Riddle notwithstanding, you just feel like that they are, they bring different stuff to the table. And Fritz has just been, his strengths appear to be just the all, the well-roundedness of his game and lack of um, extreme weakness that precludes him from, you know, a, from too many difficult losses. But um, yeah, he, I would still say he's the number one American right now. That's for sure. Higher upside this season, him or Tommy Paul? After Tommy wins Dallas Finals, Del Rey. And I still, you still want to say it's Paul, but even Paul was shaping up to have the better year last year, and Fritz made the the Tour Finals, and Paul didn't. So I mean, there's certainly some magique within Team Fritz that allows him to be the number one American, and and maybe that, you know, intra country competition, it really inspires Fritz to certainly be the best of that crew. But it's now about getting to that next ceiling for him that has proved more difficult. Ben's playing well, Marcos Giron playing well, Alex Mickelson playing well. A lot of American men are playing well right now. I think if you're Tommy, you're pretty happy with your start. I mean, shout out to Marcus Giron. There is no funnier place on the internet than the comment section of a Marcus Giron like Instagram reel where he posts very long practice videos at an angle that appears, I will say, intentional. And the comments certainly acknowledge that in large volume. It's there's no there is no safer space on the internet. I'll just say that. We can leave that there. Last three for you. Rainbow emoji. Carolina Pliskova was outside the top 70. She's now Ugh. all the way back up to number 38 in the live Ugh. rankings. Wins Kluge-Napoca. Good run in the yes. Middle East as well. Yeah, your thoughts. <laughs> Love it. I mean, I this is... <sighs> I have... I, you know, I've been, I've been working in tennis for as long as Carolina Pliskova has been relevant on tour. And so I've, I've spoken to Carolina a lot. She is so smart and so like cognizant and, and such a, a student of the game, a fan of the game, like it has no ego, you know, as much as things will frustrate her and she'll complain about things at times. They, I remember I spoke to her last year at the U S open. She was thrown out on court 14. And I said, Carolina, I was offended on your behalf that you as a former finalist, former number one was, was made to play on court 14. And she said, you know what? I didn't even mind it. I got to watch some tennis to my left and my right. I had a good time out on court 14. And I was like, good for you. That is like an amazing attitude for you to be having it in your thirties, possibly past your prime. Who knows how much longer you're going to be playing to just not be as devastated by your sort of turn of fortune. I think she's someone who's been very realistic and not delusional about the fact that she was suffering from injuries and that in those injuries prevented her from stringing together matches. She's healthy. She's stringing together matches and boom, she's back to being, you know, a contender again. And it, and it is that simple for someone like her. And that's why I think what's allowing her to play well again. You know, the fact that she's had a bad year or two has not really 
dented her confidence. She went down to Klusnapoka, won a title there, and now is very much in the conversation. And she's probably really the only player we didn't mention earlier as a potential. I don't know if she's number f- I don't know if she's number five, but I certainly think she's like very much live rankings or power rankings, top 10 right now compared to the field, certainly. Um, very happy to see her back um, in contention because she's just, you know, a very interesting look for sure on tour. She's moving well. She's striking the serve confidently, hitting the return extraordinarily well. And again, playing with the sort of freedom of someone who kind of you could tell was like, all right, what do I have to lose at this point? And, you know, again, Tennis World is a better place when Carolina Pliskova is striking the ball well. Same thing could be said, obviously, about Naomi Osaka. Thoughts on her run in these Middle East events, DK? She's hitting the ball well. She's she striking is. the ball well. And like, moving better with every match. It's still not good, but it's better. She definitely could get fitter. I'll say that. And that's that'll probably, I would imagine, will come with more matches. And yeah. she can, you know, get on a run like Ostapenko match playing fit. eight matches. She's just, it's just yeah. like the steps are off. But even, but even physically, I mean, I do well, think sure. she will. Matches, I, I think she will look differently the more matches she plays, and I think that's maybe making her just be a little bit slower and a little bit behind, and maybe even just a little bit less confident in a match against the Carolina Pliskova, who you would expect her to have the mental ascendancy over. I think though that sort of aura is lacking, and it was interesting to see her out on a, on an outer court against Petra Martic, and you know, kind of grind away to the win there, and and play two really good sets against uh, Pliskova. In Doha, I think it's coming together. I think, you know, even though it hasn't been the electric comeback that we sometimes see from players coming back from Madrid, certainly Kim Kleisters has set a very unfairly high bar for mothers coming back to tour. I think that over the next couple of months, and I, it'll be interesting to see how she approaches the clay court season in, in, in view of everything that, um, in view of everything that happened with her on that surface in, in the last few years. But I certainly think Indian Wells, Miami, four weeks that are of, prime opportunity for her to get on a roll. You would hope that she gets, you know, a, fa- a a slightly better draw. She has had some to play some pretty tough opponents in the first and second rounds of these tournaments. It hasn't been smooth sailing for her, but it's been impressive to see her enjoying herself on court and hitting the ball well. Yeah. Uh, I think there's more growth to be had there. Like, and the foundation is still solid enough that you you think Naomi Osaka can become a top 50 player pretty consistently again, top 25 player flirting with. I don't know if I see Grand Slam winning tennis in her quite yet, just because, again, when she's on her front foot, it looks so different right now than when she's not. And the bridge between those two things, that gap has to be narrowed. It just has no, to be. No, I don't, I don't think you can get outgutted by Caroline Garcia at a Grand Slam and say, oh, she's winning a slam this year. <laughs> I think that really changes no, the conversation. I'm talking more broadly. I'm not saying this season. I'm just saying more broadly as she continues her return to this sport. Like, again, what exactly um, – can we expect from her or can we expect from her not just this season but over the next three to five I mean, I years? I would be surprised if she retires having not won another slam. That would be shocking to me. And and it would it would imply to me that she she did not play very much in this comeback because I think the more she plays, if she really commits to the long-term scheduling that she wants or has talked about playing, then she will hit herself into form and is just technically just such an intimidating player. I mean, we still haven't seen ever, I don't think, peak Iga against peak Osaka. Like, that's just an, a matchup that we've never seen. I do think that that would be a player in the vein of a Sabalink and a Rebakina. She possesses that level of power that can really threaten Shrontek, even with, with as many weapons as Shrontek possesses. I think those she's one of the very rare few who can take the racket out of Iga's hand. They're kind of, they're coming for me now. I can hear it. <laughs> well, again, something to, uh, to monitor. Last but not least, is Layla Fernandez back, DK? 
<laughs> she on the she on the love boat with demon hour just like the sort of play like quirky players who uh who don't possess a lot of firepower are they are they back i don't know i mean i i've spoke to i think i mentioned this i spoke to heidi Tabak, the billie jean king cup captain of canada victorious canadian team last year and she was very high on layla fernandez felt like she just needed to play some more matches and she'd be you know, very much dominant again. I think, you know, the problem with Layla is the problem similarly with Emma. I mean, you know, they were two players who I think benefited from being new, unfamiliar opponents to the majority of the top tier of the tour. They make these, they make this US Open final and then, you know, players learn about their game and they are not overwhelmingly intimidating physically or technically. And I think that makes the week to week very difficult for both of them. And both of them have struggled with injuries and, I think it's going to be difficult to see Layla streak, you know, string together the kind of result that equals a U.S. Open. So I, I, to say that she's back to that level would be asking a lot. Is she back to top 25? Should she be seated at the next slam? I would think so. Uh, in French Open, she's always extraordinarily dangerous. I think she's playing top 25 tennis again, and there was some serious doubt that she would get back to that, given her struggles immediately following her 2021 U.S. Open final. So, again, to see her carry the form we saw at the end of last season, she's played really well in this month of February. Just something to keep an eye on. DK, that's one hour, exactly what I was hoping for from you. Uh, obviously, as we recap some of the biggest storylines that have unfolded over the course of the past two weeks, through those storylines, there have been a lot of great pieces on the dot-com from you and the team. Anything you need to plug before we wrap today's show? I mean, I don't want to necessarily advertise a competing podcast, but if you all have not been listening to Andy Roddick Served, I highly recommend it. You know, I do think he is... He's a, he's a great listen. He's a compelling guy and he's got some some interesting guests. It was interesting to have him uh, talking to Kim Kleisters, although I feel like I need to watch the YouTube video because he wrapped in the wrap of the most recent episode. He references a story that Kim told that I don't remember hearing in the podcast. He was like, and it's so great to have a long opportunity and the long podcast to have these sorts of conversations. I was like, I don't remember that conversation. Did that go, I don't know. So <laughs> no, no West off. I don't think on team served, unfortunately. So I think maybe that needs to be sorted out, but otherwise I, I think he is going to be a barn burner and a lightning rod for the 2023 tennis conversation. I just think he's, he's that kind of voice that everybody trusts and everybody listens to. So we will certainly be covering that and the opinions that he espouses on that podcast in se- in some great detail. Yeah, well, I'm looking forward to that coverage, and the person I trust, I turn to, is you, DK. So it's great to have you back here on the show. It's always great to have the efforts of our super producer, Daniel, at Westhoff as well. What sort of effort does he have to do day in, day out? Oh, West he Huff? has uh, a f***ing effort. He uh, does a f***ing editing job. Just day in, day out, making all of it possible. A shout-out to him, a shout-out as well to our friends at Tennis Point. Tennis Dash. He would go to dinner with me, by the way. Uh, he, no. He'd watch the he'd watch the traders with me. Well, it's it's, I want it's, it's you big know. brother enough. Yeah, that's funny. I want you to know I didn't even order dinner any night because Columbia's staff were so kind. They fed us so well. It was funny. The only complaint from the head official, he goes, the only thing I would have liked is just could we have gotten a topping on the pizza every day, like pepperoni one day, maybe an onion one day, something a little different the next day. Like it was always cheese. It was always delicious. They fed us very well. I didn't even get to explore New York's cuisine other than one really fun omakase night, which, again, where I was named a groomsman. Baby, my prayer for you is in 2024, you work smarter and not harder. (laughs) No, I like working hard and smart. And so anyways, all that said, for the fantastic DK, our super producer, Daniel Westhoff, our friends at Tennis Point from all of us here at both Crack Rackets and the Tennis Channel Podcast Network, I'm your host, Alex Gruskin. DK, what do we tell our listeners? And that's the break. And we will see you all tomorrow. Thanks as always, my friend. Das Vidanya. Das Vidanya.